last week we talked about principles in relationship. In fact, we spent two weeks on that in relationship to marriage. We talked about why marriages fail. We talked about why marriages get into the problems that they get into. And uh, we define marriage from a Bible perspective. And I think, as I said last couple of weeks, that is the number one thing that couples fall into today is that they look at marriage as something that man ordained instead of looking at something that God ordained. And uh, therefore, they try to run it with a worldly set of principles that have nothing to do with God. They try to leave God out of their families, out of their marriage, out of their personal relationships, and then still wonder why their marriages fail. And of course, uh, we know that uh, from last week and a couple of weeks ago how important that is. This week, we're going to look at the second most important set of principles for a child of God, and that's in the area of ministry. When I'm talking about ministry, I'm talking about public ministry. I'm talking about you coming to the point in your life where God uses you uh, in, a, in a fashion that, uh, um, you know, from out of this church and other areas of your life. And in, in taking a major responsibility at some point in your life of areas of ministry within this church. When we, when we ordain our deacons, we license our deacons. And that licensing is a, is a public uh, showing the fact that this church stands behind them in confidence that wherever they go, whatever they do, as they represent this church, they can ministry, be in ministry publicly. That means like marrying people or performing funerals or whatever it takes, um, or going to another church if somebody needs somebody to fill in and be part of that, whatever. Uh, we recognize them uh, ready to go for public ministry. And I want to talk to you about that concept of it. The importance of really understanding the connection between what we talked about the last couple of weeks in relationships and how it connects in the ministry and the principles involved. Uh, it, this is old to most of you at this point, what I'm about to say. We talk about it in Lesson 6 in Discipleship. You've heard me say it throughout the concept of, of our time in dealing with principles. The concept of God's will for your life and God's plan for your life. And I don't say it again because I, I want you to, I don't think you know it, but as it ties into what we're looking at here today. And I know we've already talked about these, but, but just basically a, a redefining of them as we move where we're going to go this morning. You've heard me say it many, many times. God has something that He wants you to do in your life. He saved you for a purpose. If you're sitting here under the sound of my voice this morning and you're a saved child of God, male or female, God saved you for a purpose. There's something that He wants to accomplish through your life. Now that will be God's plan. God's plan for, for, for you will be different than me. God's plan for the person sitting next to you will be probably different from the plan that He has for you. The, will, the plan of God is always what God wants you to do. The will of God, on the other hand, uh, has nothing to do directly with God what wants you to do but basically has to do with what God wants you to be. When you fulfill the principles and put the Word of God into your life to the degree that you start making the decisions of life about your family, about your marriage, about the personal choices that you make, then that's when you begin to fill the, the spiritual part of that relationship, God's will for your life. It's through that. It's through that relationship that you have with God that He will show you what He wants you to do and fulfill the plan. And that's what we're going to talk about today. You remember last week, by example, I told you that uh, when, you, when you come in with marital problems, a couple comes in with marital problems, 
Sometimes the guy won't want to do what's right and the woman will. Sometimes the woman don't want to do what's right and the guy will. And you, and you ask yourself, how in the world do you deal in a scenario like that from the Bible? The answer is very simple. Same principle. As long as you have one person who wants to do what's right, God will work down through their life and deal in that scenario and, and bring that thing to the point that God wants it to come to. And, uh, and I say all that because just as getting the wrong spouse will destroy God's plan for your life and God's will for your life, not getting the New Testament principles down as far as ministry is concerned will also ruin God's plan and God's will for your life. And you've heard me say it, and I say it one more time. God has something that He wants you to do. You know, it's always been amazing to me. When you read the Bible, there must be, there must be tens of thousands of characters in the Bible. And not one of them did not God have a plan for. Now, in some cases, they rejected the plan, and they became, as the Bible says, a vessel of dishonor. In other cases, they did what the Bible says, and they became vessels of, his, of honor. And the bottom line is this. Just like in the Bible, there wasn't one character that God didn't fail to use, whether it be man or a woman. It doesn't matter what they thought about God, whether they submitted themselves to God in a good way or a bad way. God still used them. And God will use everybody in this room as a vessel of honor that you'll give your life to Him and He will, he will take your life and use it in a great way or you'll keep your life to yourself and God will use you as a vessel of dishonor and, and, it'll, and, you know, and it'll go from there. And it always, it always amazed me how that people would read the Bible and they would see that every character in the Bible God had a plan for. Yes, some of them realized that plan and some of them didn't. But I've always looked at that and thought to myself, once you read that, how in the world do we exempt ourselves from the fact that God uh, doesn't want to use us? And, uh, you know, the ministry and understanding God's plan for your life is really not hard. And what I want to talk about today and what I want to focus on today is the second greatest principle. The first one was your relationship, getting the right spouse, getting the right marriage concept together. But today I want to talk about the second thing that is absolutely important based on the fact that God does have something that He wants you to do. And that will be the aspect of ministry. And you know what? When we, when we look at this, we, we break it down simply into three sets of principles. And that's how we're going to approach it today. This is going to be a very easy lesson. It's going to be a very in-depth lesson. But it's going to be very easy for you to understand. Just like the relationship was. What did I tell you? I told you when you begin to put Bible principles in your life, it simplifies the issues that you have to deal with. It takes away the confusion, takes away the mystery, and leaves you nothing but what you either do is right or what you do is wrong. And that's, uh, that's what we're going to do. You know, John Busquet sent me, a, he's always sending me little email e-burps he finds on the email thing, and he, he sent me a... Uh, he sent me a, a, a thing of, of, of John Rawlings uh, preaching. Now, I don't know, most of you don't know who John Rawlings are, and that, that's to your detriment. Uh, John Rawlings is, was absolutely one of the last of the Philadelphian preachers. He's dead now. And uh, John Rawlings was the pastor of, Cincinnati, of Landmark Baptist Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. He's out of the old school. He is certainly, when I talk about the last of the Philadelphian uh, church age, that would be John Rawlings. John Rawlings was originally from where most of the preachers uh, came from uh, when they come out of that time period. He was from down in Kentucky. 
He was an old backwood boy that got saved by preaching of the Philadelphian preachers and then someplace along the line he crossed the river and came up into Ohio and uh, settled in Cincinnati and he started, uh, he took over the church called Landmark. You know why it's called Landmark? It's called Landmark because it was the first Baptist church in Ohio. It had great historic uh, a background to it. And John Rawlings was a preacher's preacher. He not only was a great preacher, and when I met him, he was well into his 70s. And uh, not only was he a great preacher, but he was, a, he was a mentor to younger preachers. And he was a great example of, of what uh, I always used to like to listen to him preach. Now, he was rough and he was crude. And brother, he put it right across the plate waist high. But back then, people liked that kind of preaching. We hadn't sissified Christianity to the point like we have today. Uh, he, he, he didn't practice the refined sensibilities of the better art of speaking. Uh, he, he just flat told you the way it was, and boy, he could put it to you. And he was a great, great, great preacher. And when John sent that over to me, and I'm sure if you'd want to get it, he'd send it to you. But it was just a small excerpt, but it took me back into my mind. And I, remembered, I remember him saying something, and I really forgotten this. But I remembered him saying something as I was a young man, and uh, we had him at a Bible conference back at the church in my church in a home church in Ohio, and uh, he was preaching to to all the preachers that had come in. It was like a pastor's conference, and I went to it. Not that I was a pastor then, but I I wanted to be whatever God wanted me to be, and I just wanted to hear him. And for four days, he lectured these men. On, on, the, on, on what the ministry really was. And it was one of the greatest, I wish I would give anything in the world to have a copy of it on tape. I took as many notes as I could, but if you've ever seen my handwriting, even I have a tough time deciphering what I just wrote sometimes. But, but I'll never forget this. He told these young guys that were pastoring churches, and I've, I, I've thought about this for years, and I'd really forgotten it until till, uh, till John uh, jogged my memory with the, with, the, with the thing that he sent me. And he said, there's three kinds of people in every church. And he said, when you start to pastor a church and you start to work with people, you're going to find that there's three kinds of people you're going to have. And these are the kinds of people that you're going to have to deal with. He says, your first group is going to be people who are going to minister. They're going to be people who, who gravitate to and understand that God has a plan for their life. And the first type of people you're going to find in your church are people who are going to minister with you, stand side by side with you, and whatever that you go through, they're going to go through. Then he says you're going to have a second group. And he says you always want to be thankful for the first group, but you always want to keep focused on the second group. And the second group is, is the group of people who are learning how to minister. He would tell these guys, it's your job to train people to, to minister. When you take a church or you go to a church, you're going to have a core of people that are people that, that uh, are, are, are leaders. But he says, it's your job as the pastor to take new people and constantly forging them in the anvil of fire of the preaching of the Word of God to shape them. And they are people that are, are training to minister or learning how to minister and you need to bring those people along. And then he said, you're going to have a third group. And he said, the third group will people who are never going to minister. You're, every church has them. He says, you're going to find that in every church you have people who do the ministry, people who want to do the ministry, and simply people who don't want to do the ministry. And he told these guys, and he said, you know what? The problem we have is so many times we, we let the people who don't want to minister take all of our time. 
we put our focus on the people who don't want to minister that we lose sight of the people who want to be trained how to minister and they don't get everything that they need to do. I thought when I heard that, that was one of the greatest statements about ministry I had ever heard. And John, thank you. I mean, it was no accident that God had you send me that this week knowing that I was going to preach what I preached today. Uh, and it, it fit right in and brought back a flood of memories that I really needed to remember today in, in laying this out. If you and I will follow the New Testament guidelines, then you'll never go wrong in fulfilling God's plan for your life. And remember, God's plan for you is that somehow, some way, some shape, some form, you learn how to minister. And when you learn how to minister, you learn by fulfilling the will of God in your life by being everything that God wants you to be. Over the years, I've seen young men try to do it outside the principles of ministry. You're always going to have people who think that, uh, uh, you know, the principles don't apply to them. And they're hell-bent for election going to, going to get into the ministry, but they're going to do it their, their way. And I've, you know, I've, I've watched this thing for a number of years, and, I'll, and I've, seen, I've seen the fact that young men try to do it outside the principles. In every case, it's always been a disaster. You know what? You should know by now, in the time that we've spent in principles, you should understand what I'm about to say. The justification and rationalization will never override the biblical principles in anything that you do with, deal with. That's why God gave you the principles. God gave you the principles so you wouldn't have to deal with your own emotions. You could take your emotions out of it. God gave you the principles to protect you and I from making bad choices. But we always find God's people who want to do what they want to do, and the Word of God, the Word of God never really enters into it. I had a guy tell me one time years ago, and I was dealing with him on an issue, and he didn't. And and I was dealing with the biblical principles on the issue. He wanted to do something in his life that that uh, was outside the principles, and he really, really wanted to do it. It was very obvious he was going to do it anyhow. And I would try to keep him accountable with it, but after a while, you know, it was a it was a failed attempt. And he said to me one time, and I never forgot this. He says, "Ouch! I just stuck myself in the eye of my glasses." Okay, where'd half of you go? You know what he said? I'm not crying now. I'll get to my crying part in the middle, in a minute here, but that hurt. <laughs> see, I, I need to get him with wider things. See, that doesn't fit in. You know what he said? He says, why is it that every time we have a conversation, you've got to bring up the Bible? And I thought to myself, well, that's because we ought to do everything we do by the Bible principles. And that's the key. And uh, you know what? We've already seen the great principles of Paul uh, and how that he had in his spirit to do what he wanted to do when the Spirit of God told him what not to do, and he went ahead and did it, and we saw the disasters of that. Now, the three sets of principles, and I have broken this down into a really easy set of principles for you. And it's basically set one, set two, and set three. And we're going to talk about that today. And I think this is good because you need to know and understand. You need to know and understand uh, on the record, so to speak, of where this church stands on the aspect of ministry. And not that, uh, you know, we haven't preached these, for I've preached these for 35 years, you know, in my life. I've, I've, but, but always there's people that comes in and they want to say, hey, look, I want God to use me. I want God in my life. I want to do something for God. And that is great, and I commend you for that. But you can't do it your way. You have to do it God's way. Just like in a relationship, in a marriage. 
You can try all you want to run it the way you want to run it, but until you run it the way God wants you to run it, you are in a dead-end street, and it's going to probably end in disaster. Now, the first set of principles, or set number one, is principles on how God calls you. And let me just say this. God is going to call each one of you at some point. And I think it's very, very important that uh, you uh, know how that call uh, comes and how you answer that call. The second set of principles is going to be on how God prepares you. Once God calls you, then there's a period of time that you need to be prepared. You need to equip yourself. You need to get yourself to the point where you're ready to do the work of God. And then the third set of principles is on how God sends you, how God puts you into the public ministry, or how God puts these things into your life. Now, let me just say this in, in relationship to these three. God will never work outside these three sets of principles. And under any circumstances, there will be no exceptions to it. You will not say down the line someplace, well, you know what, and I've heard guys tell me this all the time. Well, the time is short, so I don't have time to do it this way. I'm going to get right into it this way. That will never be a legitimate scenario in the Christian's life. It doesn't matter how much time's left. All that matters is that when God comes, He finds you doing it by the book, by the principle. That's all that matters. There is no shortcut to ministry. A lot of people want a shortcut to ministry, but there is no shortcut to ministry. You have to follow the principles in design. And the first set of principles is how God calls you. The second set of principles is how God prepares you. And the third set of principles will be how God sends you, puts you into public ministries. Now, we're going to talk about the first set of principles here, and that is, that is how God calls you. And to understand this great principle, we need to see and understand in a better way, I think, something that you probably already should know, but it bears uh, a different, uh, you know, look at it and a little more uh, magnification on it to help you better understand it. And that is the important, importance of, of the local church ministry. What I want to do today, if I can, in the time that we have, is in dealing with these three things, is I want to, first of all, I think it's very important that we define for you what a New Testament local church is. And I think we have the idea today, you know, that uh, any, any building that has a church name on it is, is okay. And then we get into the denominational thing where, you know, the Baptists think the Methodists are wrong and the Methodists think the Catholics are wrong and, and uh, you know, everybody, uh, everybody falls under themselves. And what we do is denominations now, uh, you know what denominations are, you know, like Lutheran, Baptist, you know, uh, Pentecostal, whatever. And what we tend to do is we tend to think that one denomination is right over another. The standard joke is, you know, that guy died and went to heaven. And when he died and went to heaven, he's walking around up there, and St. Peter's kind of taking him around and showing him everything, and he walks into this one big room, and, and everybody must be, must be just millions of people in there, and they're sitting down, and they're all having chicken dinners. And uh, the guy says, now, who are these? And he says, well, these are all the Methodists. You know, Methodists are famous for having chicken dinner, you know. Then he walks down the hall a little bit farther, and he walks in there, and he, he, he sees another five, 6,000 people in there, and uh, they're all playing bingo. And he says, now, who are these people? And he says, now, these are all the Catholics. No Catholics are big playing bingo. 
And then he walked down the court a little bit more, and there's this room, and it was just filled with people in there. And when he walks in there, all around the room, there's red lights that says, no talking, please be quiet. No, no noise, no nothing. Everybody, please keep silent. And he says, well, who are these people? And he says, oh, these are the Baptists. He says, why are all the signs about being quiet? And he says, because they think they're the only ones up here. <laughs> See, that's how it works. We tend to think that our denomination is right while the other denominations out there are wrong. Now, I want to show you that's not how you define a New Testament local church today. And I want you to see as we go through this. But I also want you to see the absolute essential importance of what we call a local church ministry. You see, the first thing you need to have in your life to understand this concept is the right church. Now, why is that so important? Because you're going to see as we get through here that that's how God fulfills these three principles. We're going to talk about that as we go through. And yet... You know, uh, which, one's, which one's right for you. And remember now, you, just as you marry the wrong spouse and you lose your millennial inheritance, if the thing doesn't go right, you get in the wrong church that's not the New Testament church that God wants for you to have, and you're going to have some serious issues there too. Now, you know, and, and the dilemma is, and this is a dilemma, but let me show you how biblical principles make it so easy. Here's the dilemma. In this state, in this city, there's probably 100,000 churches. As we're speaking right now across the metro area, you know, take Kansas in and everybody else over there, and Missouri in the metro area, there's probably, what, 100,000 churches? 10,000, 20,000, I don't know. And, uh, you know, how in the world, how do you, if, if, if it's so important to get to the right church to get what you need to fulfill God's will for your life and God's plan for your life, how in the world, how in the world do you do that? Now let me ask you a question, and I'm not looking for an answer back from you, but think about this into your mind. Let me ask you a question. What determines a New Testament local church? Do you even know? You know, the, the answer lies in the book of Proverbs, and, and we don't have a lot of time to go back in that, but Proverbs chapter 22 and Proverbs chapter 23 are two great chapters. Because in those two chapters, it talks about the fact that God has given us two landmarks. And those landmarks are absolutely crucial. If you're going to find something, anything in life, you've got to start with a point of reference. One time I, uh, I, I wanted to put a fence in my backyard. And my neighbor behind me owns a lot of land. It goes on for like 150 yards and down through the woods and everything. And, and I wanted to make sure that I didn't, uh, I didn't get my fence on his property. I didn't want to build it and then have him come up and say, hey, you're 10 feet of my property. You know, you need to move your fence. So what I had to do to the fence guy is I had to have a surveyor come out. And I watched him work. And you know what? You know what a surveyor does? Years and years ago, probably in the 1800s, when Missouri was formalized, what they did is they sent out surveyors, and they basically laid the whole state down in some kind of survey format that they could always... You know what he did? He looked back there someplace, and down there under a ton of dirt and under the leaves, he found a little plate that somebody had put in the ground that whenever it was originally surveyed, marked that geographical plate that that's where the property line was. And you know what he did? Once he found that point of reference, then he could lay out exactly my fence line and he knew exactly where my property ended and that guy's property started. My point is this. If you're going to find anything in life, you've got to have a starting point and a point of reference in your life. And now we're talking about finding a church. 
Because the church that you go to, the church that you give yourself to, just like the person you marry, is going to form and forge where you go in your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see how absolutely crazy this would be? If you didn't have a point of reference or a starting point? I mean, you got the Methodist Church, the Catholic Church, the Presbyterian Church, the Baptist Church, the Nazarene Church, Bible churches, evangelical, neo-evangelical, neo-orthodox, orthodox. You got Lutheran. You got Greek Orthodox. You got churches called chapels. You got community churches. You got Christian churches. You got Bible churches. You got cornerstone churches. You got charismatic churches. You got churches of God. You got Church of Christ. You got Pentecostal church. You got holiness church. Man, it's confusing. Guy said one time, go to the church of your choice. No, no, no. You don't ever want to do that. But what you do want to do is you want to go to the church that God chooses for you. But you see what the dilemma is? What church is that? And just as people never look at the person they marry in light of where they're at with God, in light of where their millennial inheritance and what God wants them to do, they never look at churches the same way. And that's why not only are so many marriages broken and busted, but that's why so many of God's people go to church every week. They're involved in it Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night. They do everything in the world. But they never accomplish God's plan in their life because they never learn how to put God's will in their life. And nobody ever brings them to the point where they, they train them and equip them. And if God's program runs through the church, which it does, how do you choose which one is right? And, of course, that's a dilemma we all face. And... And the answer lies in the fact that God gave us two landmarks. And I'm going to define for you a New Testament local church in just a second. And if you don't hear anything else, you need to hear what I say on this, and then you can go back to sleep. God gave you two landmarks in the Bible. Those two landmarks are traceable down through history. God did that so you'd always know where you're at and have a point of reference to find a New Testament church. The first landmark is found in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 28. And keep in mind now, you and I are told that we're not to remove these landmarks. When you remove the landmarks, then you're like me, trying to put a fence in my yard, not knowing where my property line is. And uh, a, 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 a landmark gives you a point of contact. It gives you a point of reference. And in Proverbs 22, 28, you're told not to remove the ancient landmark. Now that ancient landmark will be the nation of Israel. If you want to understand history, you don't go take a history class. Just get your Bible, and if you want God's perspective on history. Now, you've got to hear something else. There's two perspectives on history. There's man's perspective on history, and then there's God's perspective on history. One of my favorite writers on history is a guy by the name of Will Durant. I think Will Durant wrote probably, I used to have them all. Some of them got lost in transit over the years. But I think he wrote something like, I don't know, a 20-volume series on the history of, of the world. And he broke it down into a, into a, into a very, uh, well, I'm not going to say understandable, because each book was about that thick. But he covered basic points of history. One of his books, he compared Caesar and Christ. Uh, one of the books, he talked about the Reformation. One of the books, he talked about the Anglo-American uh, history of how uh, the Anglo-American or the English nation formed. He talks about the European history. Now, to me, it was fascinating reading. It had nothing to do with God or the Bible. But it was a man, a human man who was lost, 
gave his incredible perception on history. But it was history from, God, from man's standpoint, not God's standpoint. When I got into the Old Testament portion of it, when he talked about the Hittite empires and the Babylonian empires, he never even spent 20 words dealing with the nation of Israel. And yet we know from God's standpoint that all history in the Old Testament follows around the nation of Israel. You want to find God in the Old Testament? Find His people. It's that simple. And His people are the nation of Israel. Now, the next, the next principle in Proverbs is Proverbs 23.10. And that's where we're told to not remove the old landmarks, and that'll be for the New Testament. See, He gave you a set of landmarks for the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, so you can always find out where you're at. And then he gave you a set of principles for the New Testament so you and I could always find out where we're at in finding the right New Testament church. Because defining a New Testament local church, you want to look for the one that lines up to what the New Testament says a church should be. Now for you and for me, to save a lot of time here this morning and keep from boring you to death with history lesson, for you and for me, that'll be the church of Antioch found in the book of Acts where they're first called Christians in Acts chapter 11. And then it runs down through Acts chapter 11 up to Acts chapter 13. And then you see the establishment of what we know as the first New Testament local church found at Antioch where they're first called Christian. That's your reference point. What you want to do, what you want to do is you begin to take from there and find out exactly where this church goes. You know, one of the things that I, I'm criticized for and people don't like about what I teach and what I say is that they don't like the fact that I've heard this all my life, and it's really a half-truth. Maybe it, it, now that I'm going on record, maybe it'll, it'll, clear the, uh, it'll clear the air because I'm sure my enemies are listening to my tape, so I want to say hi to all you out there listening to this today and hope that your day is going well. But anyway, uh, oh yeah, you'd be surprised. You'd be surprised, but that's okay. Now, one of the things I'm accused of is the fact that I'm against Bible colleges or Bible seminaries. No amens now. I'm against Bible colleges or Bible seminaries. Amen. Now, there, you got to leave. Who said that? Raise your hand. Who said that? You said that. Oh, no, I'm just kidding. And that's really not true in a sense. But here's my problem. You know, and I've been, I've been accused of being against higher education. Hey, man, nobody's been higher than me. I went to the seventh grade. I got, I got there, you know. <laughs> And, uh, and, and it's always a thing where, you know, and all that. And people, you know, take me out of context all the time. But it's not that I'm against Bible colleges or seminaries. The problem is that I am just so pro-local church. Because I know the Bible teaches that God's structure for this age is a local church. Now, I, I don't know what else to tell you. I'm not going to change and believe what you want to believe when the Bible is so clear on that particular point. I asked a guy one time, I said, do you, and he was one of these, you know, guys like, and I asked him, I said, do you know where the first New Testament church is found in the Bible? That's our model. He didn't know. Then I asked him this. I said, do you know where the first Bible college is found in the Bible? It's also in the book of Acts. He didn't know. He didn't have a clue. I'm always suspect of people who like to talk about what they believe when they can't take it back to the Bible to justify and to, and to, and to lay out what they believe. Now, I got a letter here I'm going to read you. Now, please understand that I'm reading this. I never talk this way. But I want to read you a letter I got in the mail this week. And it's a good letter. 
Let me tell you a story that goes along with this letter. Oh, way back in, I don't know, what, 1978, 1979, I, uh, I, had, uh, I had been a youth pastor, uh, and then the opportunity arose for me to take over a college and career class. And, and here's my, my, my understanding on it. I knew at that point in my life that I wanted to make a difference in people's lives. And uh, I knew that in a, in a youth class, high school kids, uh, you know, I only had so limited because the, the church at that time that I was with was so big that once they got out of high school, you know, they had it all chopped up in little Sunday school classes. So once they, once I, once they graduated from school, they went into this class, college class, you know, and I lost input in them. It wasn't like here where, you know, Kyle, you can have contact with them forever, no matter how old they are, and bring them right back and work into your ministry. It wasn't like that. Every, you know, when you graduated, you went to the next class, you know. And that was the deal. See, that's how it worked. Well, I took over the college class, and the guy that I, the guy that I, I, I who, who left, uh, and, and some of you were around then, you know who I'm talking about, and it doesn't bear, he wasn't a bad guy, but he was just a political guy. And he was going down to Savannah, Georgia. And down in Savannah, Georgia, Dr. Cecil Hodges uh, had just opened up a, a brand new Bible college. And they wanted to get kids from all across the country to come to that Bible college. And they had hired this guy to come down and be their front man who would go out and, and do that. Well, there was four guys that I really thought that were really key guys that I could really take and train. I looked at them that they were in that ministry. And I didn't know it at the time, but while he was telling me, you know, in, in this, he was underminingly talking to these guys and he got them, he got them half scholarships down to the school this Bible college, and so he was going to strip the leadership out of that, out of that deal and, and take them down there, obviously a feather in his cap, you know. And so he took four boys down there, and those four boys were, were really good kids. To my knowledge today, and that's been quite a, quite a water under the bridge, uh, I've had contact with some of them off and on. All four of those boys never made it to the ministry or out in the world and, and just done. Well, a couple of years ago, one of the boys called me, and his name is David Cage. And David, I know you're going to hear this tape, so uh, because you'll see why here in just a minute. And uh, and so he called me, and you know, and I talked to him, and he was in, and he was really struggling with some things. And then he called me back about a, oh, I don't know, eight nine months ago. And we have our website up now, and he's living in California now. And uh, and David David had had his faith taken from him by the Bible college system. And for a while he was back out of the world, he got married and, and, uh, and he called me back and David, David was a really good, all these guys were good, but David was a really good kid. But he's a classic example of what happens when somebody takes your Bible from you and, and ruins you. And so I talked to him a couple of weeks ago and, or a couple of months ago and he got, the, he got the website. And I got this letter from him this week and I gotta read it. Now, I'll do one of two things, because I know that some of you are very sensitive. Would you like me to read this letter as he wrote it, or would you like me to bleep out the things that, that, he, that he, you're too quick to shake your head no here, that bothers me. <laughs> would you like me to bleep out the, the things that he puts in it? Now, it's nothing really that we all haven't said this morning when our, our, our family wasn't fast enough getting into the car or something like that, okay? So let's don't pretend we're pious. 
But I, will, I would like to read it in its entirety because I think it loses the impact and I like to cuss. And that's just the way I can do it without any kind of repercussions coming on me, see. But I'm just going to read it. You know what? If you get mad and leave the church, uh, 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 let's see here, uh, where we got here. Uh, where, uh, uh, John, make me a list of four or five churches that if they want to leave, you can give them two on the way out over there. Okay, thank you, sir. Okay, here it goes. Hey, Bob. I am sick of Laodicea. And I am tired of being part of the vomit. Pray for me as God washes this stench off my miserable, professionalized, politically correct, putrefied soul. I want, now this next part I want you to get. Unfortunately, it doesn't have any cuss words in it, but it's good anyhow. I whined to God for years about missing all those Bible studies you did long ago. Sometimes you got to lose what God has for you to really appreciate what it was in your life. Because when he finally came back, he came back with a vengeance, as you'll see. I whined to God for years about missing all those Bible studies you did long ago when I went down to Atlanta <laughs> to attend a We Ain't Got No Bible College. <laughs> I love it. Like it was God's fault or something. Well, plain and simple, I made some bad choices. Wasted many years. Polluted my mind and my heart. And I'm a fool. So no more of this crap. I have downloaded everything you got on your website. Put it on a laptop and I'm going through it every chance I get. I'm going to learn it. And by God's grace, I'm going to get, I'm going to let him change me and I'm going to war. If this letter sounds kind of angry for a guy just wants to say thanks, I'm sorry, but I needed a kick in the ass. So thanks a lot, your brother, David Cage. Now, David, I know you're going to hear this because you're probably, Jenny will have this on the thing by this afternoon probably or by tomorrow. And so I'm going to tell you this, David. I don't really have a good address for you, and I don't have your phone number, or I don't have your email. I guarantee you, if you send me that stuff or get it to us, there are people in this church that will stay in touch with you and encourage you and call you and email you and write you and get you whatever you need to get you done. Now, you see what? Now, that's, there's a case, exactly what I'm trying to tell you. The church, and this is where I get in trouble, the church exists for one reason. You know what that reason is? It's to equip you. You know what that Bible college did? It stripped him. You either get equipped or stripped. But that's the way it works in this political correct Christian society. And that's the problem that you get into. Now, you have a landmark. You have a landmark. Something God, some place to go. Because it's through the church that God will call you. Now, here comes the definition of a church. You don't find a New Testament local church by denomination. Now, you got to get this. A New Testament local church is not designed by the name that it calls itself. But it's designed by what it believes and teaches as it lines up to the early church in the book of Acts. And you're going to find, uh, you're going to find that, uh, that there are seven basic principles that you want to look for in any church 
And these are the seven exact principles that the church at Antioch had and followed. And you can follow these seven basic main principles up through the, up through the early church, up through the Dark Ages, up into the, up, into the, up into the Renaissance, up into the Reformation, and every aspect of it. And you're going to find that not only were these seven principles found in the churches, but when our country was founded, these seven same principles were the, were the seven principles that were built into our own constitution on these principles. Now, very quickly, we're not going to have time to go through these. These are something we can do one Thursday night if you want, but let me give them to you. The first one, that the, that the New Testament church in Acts believed, and this is true all the way through church history, they believed that the Bible, the Bible, the B-I-B-L-E, the Bible was the final authority in everything that they, that they had. The early church knew what the pure word of God was. The early church knew the corruptions that the devil was putting out at that time. You know what? You've got four gospels in your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But in reality, if you go back and you study the theological world, you'll find that there's over 70 gospels. Remember a couple of months ago or about a year ago, the big stink over the gospel of Judas? Remember that in the news? And people were saying, oh, we found the gospel of Judas. And, and the gospel of Judas gives all new light that Judas was not such a bad guy. See? You have the gospel of Thomas, gospel of Mary, gospel of Bartholomew, gospel of Lazarus. you got so many gospels out there. Now, what kept you from getting in your Bible 50 gospels? What kept you in your Bible from only getting four Gospels? You know why? Because the early church who followed the principles that the Bible, as they got from the Lord Jesus Christ through Paul to them, only had four Gospels in it. And there were plenty of Christians around that period of time that were getting all the other Gospels and adding to it. They stayed with what they knew to be true. See, that's how it works. Now, from that point, there was an unbroken chain, an unbroken line of events that bring you to where we're at today. And the first aspect is, is the authority of the Word of God, and they believed it as the final authority. Look in your Bible. If you have a, one of our wide-margin Bibles or a King James Bible, look just in the front of it. And right there in the front of it, it says, Holy Bible. See that thing? Holy Bible. Holy Bible, right in the front flyleaf. Holy Bible, yeah, you got it. Holy Bible, Holy Bible. You know why the King James translators put Holy Bible in there? Because they thought it was holy. You know, for something to be holy, it has to be perfect. They also thought it was perfect. You see, I like the NIV. You know what? You go buy a first edition of the NIV, and you know what you find in their flyleaf? I'll tell you what you won't find. It ain't called the Holy Bible. You'll never find it. Now, they may have changed it since that time because they got a lot of flack over it. Maybe they didn't. But the first edition NIV, what everybody tells you is so good today, you won't find in the flyleaf where it says Holy Bible. You know why? Because they themselves don't believe it's holy because they don't believe it's perfect. I tell people all the time, I said, you, you, gotta, you believe the Bible's a perfect, inspired Word of God? And they'll say, no, I think it's got mistakes. And you got a King James Bible? And I'll say, yeah. And I say, open up that first page. And I said, now you believe it has mistakes in it. That's right. I said, let me tear this page out for you. They don't want to do that. You realize that if it's holy, then it's holy? And if it's not, it's not? 
And if it's not holy and it's got mistakes in it, what do you do telling people that it is holy or even having a page in there that says it is? If you're honest, you'd rip it out and say, well, it isn't holy like everything else. You know why it's holy? You know why the King James translators say it's holy? Because they knew it to be holy and without proven error. That's why they date with it. See, the principle just make it so easy. Second thing, they believe that you had to be saved by the blood of Christ. No baptism could save you. No works for salvation could save you. And all these things started to come in in the early church. And they stayed true. And it's been something that has went right down through history that salvation, salvation, you getting saved only comes because of Christ's death on the cross and the shedding of His blood and you applying that blood to your sins. The third thing they believed, baptism was only for adults. No baptism of babies. Second thing, the fourth thing that they believed was they were premillennial in their approach to the Bible. The next thing that they believed was a complete separation of church and state. No politics involved whatsoever. The next thing that they believed, they reconciled themselves to be the only true structure by which God called a man, God prepared a man, and then God sent a man out. And the last thing that they believed was the aspect of eternal security. Now, you want a New Testament local church as defined? Now, i got to tell you, this is not Bob, Baptist Bob's principles. This is not something that Bob put down or got out of a Baptist handbook someplace. You know my position on it. The Baptists are as big as idiots as anybody else. These are Bible principles. This is going to the Bible to the landmark, finding the point of reference, finding out what they believed, and then staying with what the true church had all down through history. Now, maybe you understand better why, why they called uh, the church there in uh, Cincinnati Landmark. And they stayed with the principles and they stayed with the book. Now, that's the God, seven principles that any church should operate by and the way that, what they should do and what they should believe. Now, based on that, it would be safe to say, and this is the, this is the hard part, this is the tough part. Based on what I just gave you, that tells you that 99.9% .9 of the churches in this country are not defined as New Testament local churches by the Bible. No wonder they want to get away from the Bible. Now, my goal, and I've made, no, I've made no preface about this any way, shape, or form since we started the church. I've told you this a thousand times. I'm not interested in a name. I'm not interested in, in, in uh, I'm interested in one thing, and that is the Bible as far as truth and keeping this church as close to a New Testament local church as I can. And uh, we do not want to remove the landmark. And I understand that what a New Testament Bible-based church should be and the importance of being doctrinally pure in all that you teach because it's through this structure, and here we go now into the first one, it's through this structure that God will, uh, will call you to minister for Him. And with that, I want to, now that you understand that, I want to take you into the first principle of how God calls you. And for this, we want to turn into 1 Samuel chapter 3. And this is one of the greatest passages in all the Bible that shows you a young Christian and how this process works. This is without a doubt one of the most incredible passages in all the Bible. Now look at 1 Samuel chapter 3, and I'm going to read it down here, and then we're going to make some things. I'm going to show you how this thing works. 1 Samuel chapter 3. Pick it up in verse 1. And the child Samuel ministered unto the Lord before Eli. 
And the word of the Lord was precious in those days, and there was no open vision. And it came to pass at the time when Eli was laid down in his place that his eyes began to wax dim that he could not see. And ere the lamp of God went out in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was, and Samuel was laid down to sleep. That the Lord called Samuel, and he answered, Here am I. And he ran unto Eli and said, Here am I, for thou callest me. And he said, I called not, lie down again. And he went in and lay down. And the Lord uh, called yet again Samuel. And, uh, and Samuel arose and went to Eli, and he said, Here am I, for thou didst call me. And he answered, I called not, my son, lie down again. Now you want to mark verse 7 here. I'm going to read it, but you want to mark verse 7, and then we're going to come back to it. Now Samuel did not, did not yet know the Lord, neither was the word of the Lord yet revealed unto him. I want to mark that verse. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, Here am I, for thou didst call me. And Eli perceived that the Lord had called the child. Therefore Eli said unto Samuel, Go lie down, and it shall be, if he call thee, that thou shalt say, Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Now this is one of the greatest passages in the Bible that shows how God calls you. Let me kind of brief the story for you so you know what we're dealing with here. Now here's what you got. We know the story of Hannah and Samuel. She wanted a boy. She got a boy. She promised God that if God gave her a son, she would give that son to the Lord. And of course she does. She keeps Samuel for a while, gets him to the point where, I don't know, maybe he's six or seven, eight or nine years old, the Bible doesn't really say. But then she takes him down to Eli, who is the priest, into the temple. And she turns him over to Eli and basically says, I told God that if he gave me a son, he would, I would give him back to him. I'm giving him back to him. Take him and make him something great. Now, you need to understand this. In the Old Testament, the structure that God worked through was the priesthood and the tabernacle. That was the structure. That was to the nation of Israel what the church is to you and me. Where in the Old Testament, the structure was the priesthood and the tabernacle. In the New Testament, the structure is the priesthood, you and me, in God's local church, where God sends you to go. A New Testament-defined local church. So when she sends him down there, it's a picture of you going into a church and beginning to get learn the Bible and beginning to fulfill God's will for your life. Remember, we talked about that starting out. And in the process of time, as you learn to be what God wants you to be, then God is going to call you to do for Him what He wants you to do. Follow me? Now look at this thing. He's down there. He goes to sleep one night. Look what happens. And it came to pass, verse 2, at the time when Eli was laid down in his place, and his eyes began to wax dim, that he could not see. Verse 3, ere the ant lamp of God went out in the temple. Now, i got to tell you, this is one of the weirdest places in the Bible because and it, it's something that you have got to see. It's one of these places that I believe the Bible kind of kind of sets out by itself. Look at verse 1. It says, And the word of the Lord was precious in those days, and there was no open vision. Now, that's quite a statement if you know anything about the Bible because in the Old Testament, God did things through the prophets. He gave things through visions. And he gave things through uh, the people that he spoke to. But now in this particular time here, for whatever reason, God says that's not working anymore. God says in this particular time, the only way I'm going to reveal myself to anybody is through what I have already written. You know what that tells me? That tells me that's a picture of the time you and I have right now in the New Testament church. You know why? Because God doesn't answer us by visions. He doesn't give us dreams. 
He won't send a message that through somebody. The message that God has for you is already in that Bible. You see, I'm preaching something to you, but I'm not preaching something that ain't in the Bible. It ain't like Bob coming up here, oh, I got a revelation from God today. You know, you all need to do this. No, I'm giving you the message out of what he already wrote. That's all I'm doing. Then I'll show you something else down there in verse 3. And here the lamp of God went out in the temple of the Lord. Now that, I don't know if you know this or not, but from the Old Testament, that lamp was never to go out. The part of the priest's job was to keep that lamp burning 24-7. Back in the book of Exodus, that lamp was never, 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 never to go out. And the only other place you find where the lamp or the candle, and that's what that lamp was, the only place you find where the lamp of God goes out anywhere else in your Bible is in the Laodicean church period that you and I are living right now. You know what it says in the book of Revelation? It says that God took the candlestick from the Laodicean church. We are living in a Laodicean church that mirrors the time that Samuel ministered under Eli where the light of God is gone. And the only way God revealed himself was to a young man was through the word of God, through the structure that God had for that young man. See how that thing works? Now here's the problem. Notice verse 3 and 9, the process. God calls him three times. Three times he's sleeping. And he says, Samuel. Samuel gets up, runs over to Eli and said, yeah, what would you want? Eli said, I didn't call you. Go back to sleep. He calls a, a th second time. Samuel. He runs up, runs over. What do you need? I didn't call you. Go back to sleep. The third time, God says, Samuel. And he runs over to him and Eli perceived that God had called the child. Now, you know what you got there? I'll tell you what you got. Let me just simplify it for you. You come into this church, and you want to do what's right. You come into this church, and you want to learn the Bible. You want to grow. You get into the right church with the right structure, and you'll begin to, begin to build uh, the will of God in your life. You'll begin to build the character qualities that God wants you to have. It's through that will of God and the character qualities that God has for you, you know what God's going to do? He's going to begin to reveal to you what you want to do. And He's going to call you by name. And He's going to say, Bob. He's going to say, Tom. He's going to say, Sue. He's going to say, Ralph. He's going to say, Mary. And you, because you're such a young Christian. Now, this is Samuel's problem. Now, this is where i got to go back to my verse here. Careful, I'm going to be very careful here now because I cannot poke the other eye. <laughs> Chris Fender, I know we got insurance. Do we have insurance if the preacher goes blind because he pokes himself in the eye during the service? Can I get about a million bucks the rest of my life for this? Okay, here we go. Now watch. Verse 7. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, neither was the word of the Lord revealed unto him. Now we know that what that doesn't mean. He's down in the temple. He's down there with Eli. He's known God about God and the concept of God and the priesthood of God all of his life. What that means yet, that God has not revealed him to him. He knows God, but he doesn't know how to discern what God is saying. And that's where so many young Christians fall down. You get a zeal, the Bible says, but not according to knowledge. And you begin to feel God something doing something in your life. And I'm sure that he is. And I always like this because, you know, it's a thing where the, the, the God had put a man in his life that was looking out for him. And when he came down and said, did you call me? Eli said, 
just go back to sleep. The second time he said, did you call me? Go back to sleep. But the third time, Eli perceived that God was doing something with a child. And I want to be honest with you. I've watched many of you who are now leaders in this church go through that same exact thing. I watched you struggle with God dealing with you. But because you have to spend some time building that relationship with God that you understand what God is telling you to do and don't get it off track, this is why God puts you in a structure and for somebody to teach you the principles so you don't make the same mistake that so many other people make. You know what Eli's advice was? Go back to sleep. Three times. Verse 5, verse 6, and verse 8. But then the last time he perceived. What he's saying is this. Look, keep doing what you're doing. Now I like the fact that he says sleep. Because sleep in the Bible represents rest. And me, that simply means that he's telling that young kid, just go back and keep doing what you're already doing. God will reveal himself to you in time. You know what, I, you know what Eli didn't do? He didn't come the first time and he say, I didn't say, I didn't call you, go back to sleep. Second time, he didn't say, oh, I didn't call you, go back to sleep. Third time, he proceeds to the Lord. And then here's what he said. I think God's called you. I think now you're going to be a great man of God. Your mother brought me down here. It's all coming clear now. You know what? You are going to be a great prophet of God. First time, I didn't know. Second time, I didn't know. But I've got perception. And now I perceive that God has called you. I'll tell you what you need to do, Samuel. You need to go to Bible college. You need to get down there and get trained and go to Bible college. No. He said, you know what you need to do? Go back to sleep again. You want to, when you're working on getting God's will in your life, God is going to begin to work the plan into your life. And that plan can become confusing. You may think God's calling you here when actually He's calling you here. He's just putting this here in your life to get you some part that you need to get you ready over here. And because you don't understand how He speaks, because you don't know how He's talking to you because you're still young at this, God put a structure in your life. Just like he put a structure in Samuel's life. Now look at the end result, verse 19. And Samuel grew, stayed there. And the Lord was with him and did let, let none of his words fall to the ground. Here's the one I want you to see. And all Israel from Dan even to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established to be a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again in Shiloh. You got to find out what Shiloh means in the Bible. It'll help you put this story together even a little bit better. And the Lord appeared again in Shiloh. For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh. How? By the word of the Lord. There it is again. He stayed with a structure. And all of Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew we have gotten God's man now. That's called the Samuel principle. God calls you through the structure of a New Testament local church the way God has designed it to work. Now we've got to look at the second set of principles. The next one is, how does God prepare you? Now we're going to have some fun with this one. And I, I love this one. This is fun. If you've been around here any, any, any amount of time and you got plugged into this church you have heard this in one form or the other. Oh, you're just following a man. You're just following a man. 
And of course, the model for what we have here of how God prepares you is the Paul and Timothy principle. Now, I got some terrible news for you. Somebody says, you're just following a man. Somebody says, you're just following a man. Well, I got some great news for you. That's what you're supposed to do. You just want to make sure it's the right man. When God wanted to prepare Samuel, he ministered before Eli. When God wanted to reveal himself to the nation of Israel, he did it through a man. John chapter 1 verse 6 says, here it comes, there was a man, see, sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. And of course, the Bible says that was the true light that lighteth every man of the world. When God wanted to reveal himself to the nation of Israel, he picked a man. He picked a man. When God wanted the Jew to get the gospel, he used Peter, a man. When God wanted to get the Gentile world to get the gospel, he called a man, Paul. And when God wanted to prepare young Timothy for a pastor, he put him under a man. So when somebody says you, you're following a man, you're just following a man, hey guys, that's what you're supposed to do. I talked to somebody this week, and we talked about this Thursday night. And I talked about this week, somebody come over and they said, I really want to learn the Bible. I really want to get the Bible. I really want to learn it. And I sit down, and when I read the Bible, I don't get anything out of it. And I try to read it, but it means nothing to me. And they said, I really get frustrated. And I said, I want to know, how do I, how do I learn the Bible? I'm trying to read it. I want to know it. I want to learn it. But I'm not, it's not doing anything for me. I pray. I ask God to show me things. But when I sit down, oh, I get a few things, but I'm not getting what I want to get out of it. And I thought to myself, that's a dilemma of so many of God's people today. You know why? You know why you don't get anything out of that? People like that remind me of a guy one time who, who his favorite thing was when he had a need, he felt the Holy Spirit of God would just give him what he needed. So whenever he had a need, he would just flip the Bible, open it up, and put a finger down on that verse, and that would be the verse that God gave him for his scenario. Only problem is one day he did that. He had a big problem in his life. He opened that thing up and he put that thing down and said, an omer is a first part of an ephah. I don't know how that helps him with his problem. That's not how you do it. You don't have to happen chance the Bible. You don't have to pay Christian roulette with the Bible. That's what he gave you principles for. And God never intended anybody, never did he intend every anybody to sit down and just open up the Bible and read the Bible and figure it out for yourself? Nobody in the Bible ever did that. When God took Paul and got Paul, he took him up on Mount Sinai in Arabia, and he gave Paul directly what he wanted Paul to know about the mystery of the church. And then he told Paul, you go down and you tell everybody and you put in an automatic chain of events. Paul went to, started churches. He trained the men in those churches. Those churches took it and trained somebody else. And then he gives you examples of Timothy, Philemon, and he, and he shows you Titus. All three were won to Christ by Paul that he invested his life with. Those three are probably a, three of 10,000 people that Paul ministered to. God never intended for you to sit out and open it up and figure it out yourself. He gave you a structure, and then he will put a man or a woman in your life. We call it discipleship. I call it one-on-one. -on -one. We call it Bible Institute. 
We call it the things that you get by following a man. Because that's what God wants you to do. I mean, if I'm wrong or mistaken, in Acts chapter 8, when the Ethiopian eunuch is sitting on the back of that chariot, trying to read Isaiah 55, and he can't figure it out, and God sends him Philip, a man, and Philip runs over to him and asks the classic question, Understandeth what thou readest? What was his reply? How can I accept some what? Man. Say it again. Man should guide me. Somebody says, you're following a man. You're following a man. That's what you're supposed to do. Make sure you got the right guy. One of my boys years ago, this is hilarious. One of my boys years ago, <coughs> we met a guy that, <coughs> that uh, didn't care for me or our ministry, you know, and didn't like King James Bible. And he says, uh, he says oh, you go to, you're, you, you've been taught by Bob. And he says, yeah, that's right. He says, oh, he says, uh, he says you're following a man. You're following a man. He said, what do you mean I'm following a man? He says, well, you believe that Bible's inerrant. He says, yes, I do. And he says, well, that's what Bob teaches. You're following a man. My boy said, you believe that Bible has mistakes in it? That guy said, yes, I do. My boy said, who taught you that? You recognize that everybody accuses you of following a man is following somebody? Sometime when you got a rainy afternoon and there's no football games on, read 3 John. Three of John's a great book. It talks about two kinds of men. One of them is Gaius. Don't let the name fool you. He's okay. <laughs> and the Bible talks about Gaius as, as, a, as a fellow servant. Paul say, or John says he is, he is really the real deal. He says he walks in truth and the truth is in him. Then he talks about another guy. His name is Diotrephes. And that whole book, and it's just a short book, you could read it probably in 15 minutes, probably 10. But that whole book is about two types of men. One is Gaius, who walks in the truth, and the other one is Diotrephes, who stood against the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And John says there that he tried to hurt the work. John says he prattled against us with malicious words. The Bible says in 3 John chapter 1, verse 9, John says he loved the preeminence of men. He loved for people to look at him and know how great he was with the Bible. His whole countenance depended on you recognize how much he knew how great he was. But John says, he heard our work. And then he comes down there and he says, remember his deeds. Now, if you'd go to my Bible in 1 John chapter 13, or 1 John there, you'd find a list of about 13 or 14 people down through my life. I call them the diotrephes of my life. You know what? In the ministry, you're going to have those kind of people. They're people who have never built anything themselves. They're people who could never pastor a church if their life depended on it. Most of the time, their own families are against them, and they can't even get that right. And you're going to find that their whole life is going around who they can't get anybody to follow them. So they go around telling you that you're following a man, so hopefully, just hopefully, you'll follow them. See, that's how it works. Somebody says, what do you do about people like that? Let me tell you something. I've learned this over 30-some years in a minute. The diotrephes of life never bother the work of God. I always liken them on a trip from here to Kansas City to Seattle, Washington. You know which? Look at that as your ministry, starting in Kansas City, winding up at Seattle, which is in heaven, and you've got a troop to go there. 
I looked at the diathesis on that trip, just looked like bugs on a windshield. They don't really matter. They make a little splatter, but they don't really matter. And the next year at the next gas station, you get that big old gray sponge there and you just clean them off. They don't matter. They don't matter at all. Everybody in here ought to be following somebody. You just better make sure it's the right guy. Better make sure it's the right guy. You know what Paul said? 1 Corinthians 4, 16, he said, Wherefore I beseech you that you be followers of me. He said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, Be ye followers of me, even I am also of Christ. Philippians chapter 3, verse 7 and 18, Brethren, be followers together of me. Mark them which walk so, for you have heard of us, and you have, you have us for an example. For many walk of whom I have told you often, and now tell you weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. He's talking about saved people. He's talking about the diathesis in life. He's talking about the people that will try to get you to quit following one guy to follow them. When their own family won't even follow them. Everybody follows somebody. You know what? Here's how it works. God puts a man in your life to build you. And the devil puts a man in your life to tear down what God's trying to build. It's like the old Bible college concept. The church equips you. The college strips you. Talk to David Cage. Talk to my buddy David Cage. Paul invested his, his time with Titus, Philemon, and Timothy. And of course, he told us in Timothy, told Timothy, the same thing that I've committed to you, you take and commit to, un, to commit the faithful men. The man in my life that taught me the Bible was Mel Sabaka. The man in his life that taught him the Bible was Peter Ruckman. The man in Peter Ruckman's life was Hugh Pyle. I don't know who ministered to you, Pyle, but somebody did. And somebody ministered to the minister that ministered to you, Pyle. And all the way back to the early church with Paul and Timothy, there was an unbroken chain of events of faithful men committing to unfaithful men what God has given to them. And that's how you learn your Bible. That's how you get equipped. I learned a long time ago there's only two things in this world worth investing your life in. And the quicker you, some of you learn this, the better off you're going to be. There's only two things, as a shout of God, only two things I've found in over 35 years of ministry that is worth investing your life with because it's the only two things that are eternal and going to last through all eternal. One of them is the Word of God. The other one is the souls of men. Everything else doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. Then our third and final set of principles. This is how God gets you into the ministry. Now, I want to say this. There's no doubt in my mind that in the years to come, some of you will be in full-time ministry. I had a guy talk to me this week who definitely needs somebody to come and work with him in his church called me and said, hey, do you have anybody that, that you feel is, would be what I needed for the ministry? And I told him, I said, you know what? I said, I don't have anybody ready to go at this particular point, but I got some are on the burner and they're cooking. I said, I probably can't help you, but down the line I will have, as God so directs and God so leads, you know, I'll have the people that, that need to be done. And yet at the same time, uh, that's true of, of some of you. <clears throat> and God has to do what he has to do. But at the same time, I also know that, that what my job is right here. And, I, and we've been here together now six years. 
Some of you, every bit of that time, some of you came somewhere on the process. But I've watched this thing, and I've watched how this thing really just just goes. And I I have taken, and I'm kind of like an arrowhead maker. I'm trying to shape a head of a javelin. There's two or three of you guys in here. Right now as we stand, if something happened to me, you could form into an alliance and you could handle this church. In time, we want that thing to come where we shape that arrowhead to the place where we have a, it becomes the tip of a spear. Behind the scenes with everything we do, like volleyball, like Bible study, like institute, like the upcoming, the upcoming uh, softball deal. You either look at that as a ministry or you look at that as a softball game. You either look at it and see the opportunities to bring your friends in, to minister to them and get them into a New Testament church that they can get the Bible and get saved maybe, or you look at it as oh, just a softball league. You look at it one way or the other. You, you look at it determined, why do I want to get in or not? I really can't play softball. Can you minister? Can you do something to somebody else? You see, that's the key. It is, that's what you've got to look for. The shape of that, the, the head of that javelin gets shaped. It gets, it, gets, it gets sharpened, and it comes to a point. And the point is there, that someday somebody is going to have to take over this church. If Jesus doesn't come, it's going to have to be formed to a, to a point where it's ready to go that it cuts on both sides. And I look at everything that we do in preparation for that. You see, you have the luxury to look at it like a volleyball league. You have the luxury to look at it like just a softball league. You have that luxury. You have the luxury to look to choose whether you come to Thursday night Bible study or not. You have that luxury. You have the luxury to come and take in what you like out of here and not like. You have that luxury. As a pastor, you don't have that luxury. You got to look at everybody you got and you got to break it down, as old John Rowling said. Those who want to minister, those who want to learn how to minister, and you're going to have the ones who are never going to minister. And you got to take what you have and focus that and, and angle that, that spear point to get it to cut. That you can train some leaders that'll take no matter what happens and stand. And make sure that the doctrine of this church stays pure. <clears throat> make sure the things that we do are biblical. And follow the line that has been given all the way down through the church. Now when it comes to <clears throat> going into the ministry, let me give you the number one principle. And you want to write this down. This will answer a lot of questions for you. Here's a simple fact. <clears throat> when it comes to going into the ministry, whether you go out someplace else or you work here, <clears throat> nobody goes out. They're sent out. Say this again. Nobody in the New Testament just decides to go out. Nobody. Nobody in the New Testament woke up one morning and said, <clears throat> I've decided I'm going to go into ministry. Nobody. There isn't one example anywhere in the Bible in the church where anybody just decides to go out. They're sent out. I'll show you how this principle works. Remember 1 Samuel chapter 3, verses 19 through 21? The Bible says that Samuel stayed there with Eli. He grew, and the Lord was with him. And here's really the key. Here's the key to young Samuel, and here's the key to you and me. 
And here's really the key. I can stop right here and be done now for the rest of the day. But that ain't going to happen. I could have just gave you this verse and never gave you anything else and we could have been done. But you wouldn't have put it in the right context. Here's the key. Here's what some of you who are going to minister do. And here's why some of you will never minister. This is what you don't do. And it's just that simple. Look at that passage again. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and did let none of his words fall to the ground. He hung on to everything he learned. He got every concept that was taught. He realized that his life wasn't about what he wanted to do. It wasn't about his career. It wasn't about his future. It was about that God had saved him and God had called him. And there was a process. And the way that he had to get there was stay in the structure and learn from Eli. But not let any of God's words fall to the ground. And the Lord appeared, uh, verse 20, excuse me, and all Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established to be a prophet. You know what my advice is to you? Let God establish you. When God establishes you, you don't have to rent a billboard that says, I'm ready for ministry. When God establishes you, you don't have to print up t-shirts and look at me, I'm ready to go. When God establishes you, then everybody knows. And i got to be very honest with you, one of the joys of ministry is watching that progress in your life. Watching that process. I've seen some people that brought some of you into church, that when they, you came in, they were good, and you do nothing. And now, what, two or three years later, they ain't even here anymore, and you're growing and doing and doing the work of God. I love to watch the process. I want to watch young men who come into this ministry, who grow up, who really grasp it. Young ladies who get saved, come into this church, know nothing, know absolutely nothing, and, and buy in to the structure and let God form them, mold them, fashion them, and watch God promote them up through the system. That's the way it works. God established Samuel through the Old Testament structure and all Israel knew it and then sent him out to be the greatest prophet that Israel probably ever had. When God wanted Paul and Barnabas to go out, look at Acts chapter 13. Look at the principles involved. Acts chapter 13. Now they were in the church that was at Antioch. There's our model church. <clears throat> Now there were in the church that was at now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers as Barnabas and Simon that was called Niger and Lucius of Cyrene and Manian which had been brought up with Herod the tetrarch and Saul Now here comes the key And as they ministered to the Lord and fasted the Holy Ghost said Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, that's Paul, for the work were until I have called them. Now look at that thing. You see, once Paul went to Sinai and got the gospel concept from God himself, you know where Paul went? 
he went to a local church down in Antioch. Even though he had just got the direct revelation from God of the gospel, in fact, it's so direct that Paul himself calls it my gospel. Even though he went face to face with God, notice how God never violates his own principles and neither should you and I. Even after he got the message straight from God directly to him, and he was, got the green light to go. You know what Paul did? He put himself under the authority of a New Testament local church. And let them send him out and let the God speak through them. Even though he knew that God had called him to do. Now what are you going to do with that? You know what you're going to do? Some of you are going to do exactly what you want to do. That's what you're going to do. That's what they always do. And that's just the way it is. God told the leadership of that church that it was time for them to go. They had recognized what they had done. They had done a work that nobody could deny. God had established them, and now they were on their way to ministry. I'll show you another one in, first, uh, in Acts chapter 16. When God called Timothy to go with Paul. Watch this one. Just a couple chapters over in Acts chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. Look at the process. Look at the process. Then came he, Paul, to Deborah, or Derby, and Lystra. And behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain woman, which was a Jewish and believed, but his father was a Greek. Now, there's a whole whole lesson in that that we don't have time to get into it this morning, but you want a good study on what God looks for in a young man? There's a, we could take a couple hours on that one. Now, here's what I want you to see, verse 2. Which was well reported by the brethren that were at Lystra and Iconium. The first time Timothy shows up is in Acts chapter 16. And you're going to find that Paul looks for him, and Paul looks down through there, and he finds a young man. But I want you to notice, it wasn't just somebody that was out there. It was somebody that the Bible says was well reported of by the brethren. Paul, Timothy had done the job. He had a good reputation in that church. You know what Proverbs chapter 22 verse 1 says? It says a good name is better than riches. And in any church, as God is going to establish you, you got to do it cleaner and better than anybody else. If you're ever going to be a leader in this church, you got to live it by the principles. You got to live it by the principles. It's by the book, because that book will establish you. And I, I tell you all the time, I, you know what, I mean, I think many of you, many times, you, you, uh, you know what, you, you would be better off if you just followed the principles. And I've told you many, many times, you know, the key to your success is the fact that if you're going to be a leader in this church, you've got to better do it better, cleaner, than better than anybody else. I mean, you can never, never come to the place where you use this church for other than ministry. You can't ever come to the place where you as a leader in this church take advantage financially or any other way of anybody in this church. You have to be a leader, has to be above reproach. You have to be a giver, not a taker. You have to be somebody that is putting out, not taking from somebody. Your business dealings have to be above reproach. I tell you all the time, and I've had a standard rule, and you don't follow it, most of you, but I've told you this from day one. It's better off if you don't do business with people in the church. You're better off. 
You're just better off. And I've told you that from day one. Because the devil always gets into details. Two reasons for that. You know why? Because the person who does business with a person in the church, they expect something a little more because we're Christians. And you shouldn't expect that. You shouldn't expect a better deal. If you go to somebody and they have a particular business that you want to do, if they give you a better deal, that's them. But you should not go in expecting it. Because what happens is, once, you, once you, the bill comes back and it's not what you, you suppose it should be because, well, we're in the same church together, then you get an attitude about that. You should never go that way. And you're better off just to, just to not do that. And at the same time, there are people that, that get themselves, that they, they, they take advantage of people. And, and you know what? Then you get an attitude about that. I've learned it. I've learned it. I've learned it. I've learned it over the years. You're better off in every way, shape, or form. You're better off to take your business outside. Uh, I, I'm going to make a statement. It ain't a very nice statement, but I'm going to make it. You know what? The worst hosings I ever got in the business world, I got from God's people. Not from unsaved people. And you're just better off. You want to do whatever you do and be above reproach. You want to have your character and your ministry established that when a ministry time comes up, there's no question about it. Nobody says, well, she ripped me off or he ripped me off or they still owe me money or they did this or they did that. You don't want that on your resume. You want it done cleanly by the book, and you never, in ministry, listen to me, you never, never, never in ministry put yourself in a position to take from somebody that's a Christian. Never, never, never. You give, but you never take. We got a $1,000 check this week in the mail from a couple that I worked with in, in marriage that have some severe problems. Worked with them for a number of years. And I don't know that it's going to work out for them, but you know what? They appreciated the time that I spent with them. And they appreciated all that I do. And you know my policy. I don't, I don't ever, you know, I, and, and they never asked me, do you want any money or should we give you? They never did. But this week, he called me on the phone and said, I'm sending you, sending you a $1,000 check. He says, how do you want it made out? Now, let me tell you what most pastors would do at this point. See, this is off the clock. What are you looking at? It's off the clock. It's off the clock. <laughs> I love you. This is off the clock. This is on my time. I counseled them from 2 in the morning to 5. I'm off the clock. You know what most pastors would do? Make it out to me. Because they would say, $1,000, well, this has nothing to do with the church. It has nothing to do with the church. So I'm going to take this because this is my, and, and, and maybe, maybe that's okay. I'm not making a judgment on one way or the other. The bottom line is this. I'll never take from anybody. I can't legally in my mind before the principles of the Word of God ever justify trying to help somebody with the Bible and then taking money for it. Now, I get paid a salary here, but that's my job. But you pay me a salary. I'm not working on a side on my own. I don't have a little shingle out the back that says, Bob's Counseling Service, half-cut rate. I said, make it out to the church. You never take from people. Never. You never, now that doesn't mean that people don't do nice things from you. I like Reese cups, I like brownies with lots of ice cream and chocolate ice on the top. Okay, okay, I understand. I have, my, I have my downside too, you know. You bring me a Reese cup and you lay it on the table and walk 10 feet away, he took it. <laughs> I saw him take it. Well, he snapped that, he's a Reese cup sealer right there, he is. He walked through there and grabbed that thing. You never take. I'm telling you, you never take. 
You never take. I don't care how legitimate it looks. I don't care what. You never take. You never take. You give back. You give. Our job as ministers is not to take. It's to give. It's to give. You give your time. You give every, every aspect of you. When somebody needs something, you're a giver. You give to them. You don't ask for anything back. It's unconditional. Let God establish, establish you in your, like Timothy. Well reported among the brethren. There wasn't one thing anybody said. Because he did it by the book. And so will you. And so will you. When Paul wrote First and Second Timothy, I always loved those books because they were books that were written directly to him. And in those books, in 1 Timothy, you'll find 12 principles, absolutely essential, absolutely necessary, 12 principles that God, through Paul, his man, told him that he had to do to be in the ministry. Absolute principles. In 2 Timothy, he tells him about the right doctrine and how to protect it. <clears throat> the New Testament church is the only structure that God ever ordained to call you, to train you, and to put you into ministry. You can find another application. You can believe somebody else. I'd talk to him first before you do it. I told you a couple of weeks ago that one of our, in one of our principal studies that when Christ went back to heaven in, in Acts chapter 1 and 2, he replaced himself with three things. <clears throat> the first thing he replaced himself with was the Holy Spirit of God. The second thing he replaced himself with was the Word of God. <clears throat> and the third thing he replaced himself with was the local church. These three things are what you need that Christ gave you when His physical presence went back to heaven. <clears throat> These are the three things <clears throat> that He gave you to fulfill God's will for your life, thereby fulfilling God's plan for your life, then getting yourself ready to go. The Holy Spirit of God is your guide to ministry. The Word of God is your road back to ministry. And the local church is your vehicle to ministry. In the world that we call Christianity today, we have the devil taking two of those absolutely imperative three things out of our lives. See, you can't get the Holy Spirit of God if you're saved. But what he does get is the Word of God and the local church concept. The local church equips you. The higher realm of education strips you. I want to tell you one more story. And then I'm going to close this out. We're in good shape here. A number of years ago, Right up the road here, there's a place called Calvary Bible College. A number of years ago, I had two of the boys of the chancellor or the president of Calvary Bible College in my youth ministry, really my college ministry. He didn't like me, and I really didn't care for him. He knew my stand on the book. He was a Greek and Hebrew expert. One of his boys the youngest one came in to see me. And this boy had some real spiritual issues in his life. He was struggling with what he wanted to believe about God and do in his life and what God wanted to do, but the pressure he was getting from his dad. Every time he'd come to a Bible study or he'd come to church and he'd go home with his notes, his dad would look over his shoulder and make fun of me, tell him how wrong I was. The kid came in and talked to me one time and he said, I don't know what to do. And I told him, I said, you know what you got to do? <clears throat> you're going to have to decide whether you're going to follow the Word of God or you're going to follow your dad. And I said, and that's a tough position to you be in. 
He stayed with a little while, and then he come back. Now, keep in mind, this was a man who was the president of the Bible College right here in Kansas City. If I told you your name, some of them would probably know him, but I'm not. About six weeks later, maybe a couple of months later, his boy came back in, and I could tell the boy had changed. And he brought with me, and he said, I want to show you a book. And he said, I want you to explain all of these to me. You know what his dad had done? His dad so hated that King James Bible. His dad so hated anybody who would tell his son that he had a Bible that he could believe and trust, not only with his soul, but with everything in his life. His dad had found him one of his books from the college that pointed out 105 mistakes in the King James Bible. And at that point, I lost that kid right there. Now where I was his friend, now I'm his enemy, and he wanted me to defend in 105 places why the King James Bible was wrong. You know where that kid is at today? He's out in the world. I'm not sure he was even saved when I dealt with him. But I guarantee you this, he wants nothing to do with God, and he wants nothing to do with anything about God or that Bible. You know why? Because someone who should have been the one to give him the Word of God and equip him with the Word of God stripped him of it. And I could give you a thousand stories just like that. Because that's the way it works in this Christian world that we have today. God wants to prepare you because He has something for you to do. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Now, I'm going to be done here in just a second. 